This is David's Book Talk, bringing authors and book lovers together in a unique way since 2009. Visit us at davidsbooktalk.com and join the conversation at facebook.com slash davidsbooktalk. But first, pull up a chair, relax, and enjoy today's episode. Here's your host, David English. Hello and welcome to David's Book Talk. And today we have a very special guest. He's a new author and he has a new book called Death and the Conjurer. And his name is Tom Mead. Hello. Hi, David. Thanks for having me. It, well, we—I feel like we've been through a journey together trying to get you, trying to get this to happen, um, because of um, you know, just all the things beforehand. But this book's coming out July twelfth, right in the, in the United States, correct? That's right. Yes, it's coming out from Mysterious Press. Right. So, take me. Th- uh, the book is really, really good. I really enjoyed it. I'm looking forward to seeing this character again, as, as I'm sure you're hoping. Th- oh, that's great. I'm glad. Yeah, and I think a lot of other people are going to be glad too. So, how did you get? You've written for. Oh, look at this. You've written for Ellery Queen and Alfred Hitchcock. So, how many stories have you had in those magazines? Um, I've had uh, a couple in Ellery Queen, um, one in Alfred Hitchcock, one in Mystery Weekly, as it was called, uh, a a handful in anthologies. So uh, I've written quite a few short stories uh, prior to Death and the Conjurer, Um, a handful featuring the, uh, the Spectre, character who uh, who's the main guy in, in Death and the Conjurer. So this is not the first time we've seen him then? Uh, no. Um, seen him in our minds, I guess. What, seen him, we haven't seen him on the screen yet, but I'm just mean, seen him in our minds, I guess is what I mean. But <laughs> it's funny how yeah, I say of that. Of course, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I'm Spectre. I'm just trying to think what the first story was. An early one was um, The Indian Rope Trick, a short story that was published in Ellery Queen uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, that was um, that was a, a, that may have been the first one that I wrote. Um, it's uh, it was about a competition between two rival magicians, where Spectre was called in to judge um, who could perform the best version of the the Indian rope trick, and. Um, uh, and then one of the magicians was murdered, obviously, and it, and it was uh, a seemingly impossible crime. So uh, that was an early story that I wrote with Spectre. Just hearing you say it reminds me of that, that book by Susanna Clark, Doctor Strange and Mr. Norell. Did you read that book, by the way? I haven't read that one, no, but I'm familiar with it. I know it was televised as well, yeah. You have to read that, but no, forget the TV version. It, it, the book is so spectacular, but that, when you were just talking like that, and that's what it, it instantly conjured up memories of reading that book, which is interesting. Ah, uh, good. I'm, yeah, you'd recommend that one. I'll track it down. Oh, it's fantastic. Absolutely. It's one of those books you just remember reading how much you enjoyed it. I mean, that, and those don't come along every day, as we all know. So Absolutely. How did you get, so when did Otto Penzler become interested in you, or has he always been, I mean, did you, how did you connect with him? Well, um, it was, uh, first of all, I wrote a short story called Heat Wave, which was a, a sort of a noir pastiche, um, and it was published here in the UK in an anthology by Flame Tree Press. And um, then I, I got an email at the beginning of last year to say that um, uh, that Lee Child had selected that story to go in his uh, um, a collection that he was editing for Mysterious Press, the best crime stories of the year. 2021. Um, so um, obviously that that was the, the first of a new series from Mysterious Press uh, with uh, uh, Lee Child as guest editor and Otto Penzler as uh, a series editor. 
Um, so, uh, obviously I was over the moon about that because I'd, um, uh, I mean, I was writing short stories uh, a lot at that point, uh, and it's nice, it's always nice to get that kind of recognition, obviously, it was the first time that I'd had anything on that sort of scale, um, but it was uh, very useful as well because it put me in touch with Otto Penzler, and I um, know his name, knew his name, of course, as, uh, you know, an important figure in crime fiction with a... a um, you know, an, an encyclopedic knowledge of, of classic mysteries, etc. Um, and one of my favourite books is his um, collection of uh, locked room mysteries, uh, the, the Black Lizard book of locked room mysteries uh, and impossible crimes, uh, which uh, is a really, really fantastic short story anthology that's just so comprehensive. Um, and uh, it, it's got everybody in there. It's, it's got some really sensational stories. Uh, so I knew that he's a fan of, of locked room mysteries and classic style, uh, golden age style, impossible crimes in the vein of uh, John Dixon Carr, Ellery Queen, those kinds of writers. So, so I thought that I would just reach out to him and see if he would be interested in reading uh, uh, the manuscript that would eventually become Death and the Conjurer. And uh, to my surprise, he was very positive. So, uh, so yeah, it was, it was all just, look, things fell into place, really. One of the wonderful things about the book publishing world is the nice people that you meet. You, you rarely meet a, a mean person. I mean, there's egos everywhere, yeah, of course. But you really, with the people behind the scenes, they're usually very nice people. And, I mean, Otto's one of the best, you know, and, and then Lee Child, my God, I met him in person, and he's just the, the nicest. You, you talk to him, you can't even believe he's talking to you because you, you think the man's so big. I mean, he's, he's, he's become an international sensation. You think, you know, I've talked to anybody, but he doesn't want to, you know. And this, Yeah, this is it. It's, it's incredible to me, you know, because... Um, uh, um, for a story like Heatwave, which was published here in the UK, uh, to uh, even appear on on the radar of uh, of Lee Child and Otto Penzler was was really great. So, it, Death in the Conjure is going to be out in England. Is it going to be out in England at the same time as the United States, or how does how is that working? Um, so it is coming out here in the UK. It's coming out as an e-book first, um, and then as a hardcover edition uh, at a later date. Um, but uh, um, UK readers can pre-order it, or obviously they can they can get the e-book. But uh, it's coming out in both hardcover and e-book in in the US, um, July the twelfth. When is it? When is it available in the, in the UK? Uh, well, the ebook is also July the twelfth. Oh, um, so it's about the hardcover. Right. Uh, the hardcover, I believe, is um, January twenty twenty three. So there's a bit of a wait for that one. Mm. But um, yeah. But I assume that the UK cover will be different than the American cover. They usually are. It is yes. Uh, very different, but they've both gone with the top hat motif, which I like, um, because, I mean, it's such a, I mean, it puts me in mind of Clayton Rawson, uh, his book, Death from a Top Hat, which is uh, a fantastic uh, locked room mystery that I really admire. So I like, I like the, uh, that both cover designs kind of echo that. So here's the question. Are, are you a magician in real life? Can you perform magic tricks? No, I wish I wish that I could. I um, well, the way you write it, the way you write about them in the book, it's like you know a lot about them. I do a lot of research. I do a lot of reading about magic. I'm, I'm fascinated with it as a um, um, as a, a a kind of analogy for mystery writing generally, because I think there's a lot in common between stage magicians and mystery writers in the um, in both cases, you're um, leading the audience in the wrong direction. You want them to be looking away from the trick as it's being worked. And I think that that sense of misdirection is such a key thing in both 
uh, in both fields. Um, I read a lot about stage magic for um, ideas for, you know, gimmicks and uh, little ideas and misdirections that I can extrapolate and use in my mystery writing. And it just seems natural to me to have magicians as characters uh, because, uh, you know, that they tread that fire, that fine line between um, the, uh, the the world of uh, um, illusion and the uh, the mystery, the the complex plots, etc. of the mysteries. So I, I think it just all fits together very neatly. I mean, the the, uh, the mere fact of a magician that somebody is so clever is that they can misdirect you and they and make you look at something else while they're they're deceiving you is it, fascinating. I mean, who doesn't get fascinated by it? I mean, just the thought of. I know. I, yeah, I love it. I, but I'm someone who loves to know how the tricks are done as well. Right. So I think that um, the, the mystery, um, the, the mystery writer in me uh, wants to kind of lift the curtain and explain at the end how it's all done and so um, uh, Death and the Conjurer is me doing that really. You, you set up an apparently impossible situation where there's no way that it, it can it can be explained um, and then you, you, you perform the impossible at the end by uh, giving it all a logical explanation. That's what I love about this kind of mystery. Right, exactly. Now this book has three mysteries in one. You get three, you actually get three in one in the same book. Yes, uh, uh, you've got two locked room style murders in the vein of John Dixon Carr, um, uh, Ellery Queen, uh, Clayton Rawson, who I mentioned, um, in that they are uh, crimes which uh, th there seems to be no physical way that they could have been committed. Um, there, there's almost kind of a surreal, supernatural element um, uh, in the. It, it just appears impossible. But, of course, there is a logical explanation. And then there's a, a seemingly impossible theft of a, of a priceless painting as well. Um, but uh, an interesting thing for me was not only coming up with the, the individual tricks for each of the crimes, but also threading them together uh, so that they, they all, each uh, element of the story has a, a, a different part to play in illuminating the characters, etc. How much time did it take, before you started, sat down and started writing this book, how much research was involved? And how much, I mean, it, it's a complicated story. I mean, it's not a, it's not a, so you had to, have to come up with all these ideas beforehand. It must have taken you a while. Yeah, it did take a long time. I mean, I was uh, writing it on and off uh, for, you know, about a couple of years maybe while I was working full time. So, um, uh, so it was really a case of coming up with the ideas individually and then, as I said, kind of uh, kind of threading them together, coming up with a, a, a sort of overarching story that would, uh, that would, that they would all fit neatly into. Um, I knew that it would be a Spectre story because obviously I, I'd come up with that character already for my short stories and I, I like writing about that sort of character, that, that kind of, um, a character who's got a bit of mystery, we don't really know his background, but he's, uh, he sort of knows everything. He's kind of a, a Machiavellian figure who, um, who uh, who has that that logical um, incisive perception? He can see what's what's really going on. So I knew I was going to use him, uh, but then uh, really it was it was quite a gradual process of building up uh, the the individual layers of plot and character and piecing them together. So coming up with this character and this character being as smart as he is, that would mean you as the writer would have to be smarter than him. <laughs> I mean, to come <laughs> well, well <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, I've I, I, I talked about this with people before and writing impossible crimes, the, the way that they are often um, described is um, making the impossible possible. So you're taking a, a seemingly impossible situation and you're 
um, and you're explaining it away with logic uh, in, a, in a satisfactory way for the reader. But I think of it as actually the inverse. What you're doing is taking uh, you're taking a, a logical sequence of events and you're making them seem impossible when they're not. So, so really, it's about is that uh, difficult to do with, though? Um, well, I read a lot of, um, a lot through Mysteries and Impossible Crimes. I read, uh, I, I'm always seeking them out. I just love reading them. And so, uh, for me, it's, um, as somebody who reads it a lot, you can kind of slip into that, that way of thinking. Yeah, it's, um, something that I really enjoy doing. I love the, the challenge of it as a, as a writer and as a reader as well, you know. Um, I love the, the kind of, uh, the, the, the sort of, um, the kind of battle of wills between the writer and reader and the, it's the writer saying, um, I, uh, it, it's the writer kind of uh, setting out the problem and saying, I bet you can't solve this before I do. Uh, I think that's the fun side of it. Absolutely. Now, I, I think of, there's, another, there's a writer I used to read every one of his stories. His name is Edward D. Hawk, H-O-C-H, and he always wrote Lockwood Mysteries, things that were impossible. I don't know if you've ever read them or not. Fantastic. Yes, absolutely. I'm a huge fan of his uh, of his work. I've got many of his collections, but uh, I understand he wrote um, nearly a thousand stories. What, a, that, what an amazing human being, too. Just a, I mean, and, uh, when I first met him, incredible imagination. I met him in an elevator at a, at a convention, and I was, you know, was, he couldn't have been nicer. I mean, when you approach an author, you never know what they're going to be like. You think to yourself, well, maybe they'll just like curse me out and move on like they don't really care but this man was so generous and so wonderful when I got a chance to interview him I, I was nearly in tears because just thinking of all the stories that I've read that have that have moved me so much over the years was just an incredibly moving experience and and to have him be as nice and all you can think of is the brilliance in this man's mind to come up with these things that's it the, the scope of his imagination is just uh, remarkable I mean to have that, uh, to come up with not just a volume of stories, but to have them be so original and um, exciting and that always be something different is just fantastic. If you're a fan of, uh, of Ed Hoke, I think um, uh, um, when I was first writing Spectre, I was thinking in some way of Simon Ark, one of his series characters, yes. who's... Mm -hmm. um, uh, who has uh, just a, a hint of something uncanny or supernatural about him, but who explains the problems using logic. So I think I, I was, I think that kind of, that influenced me when I was uh, first writing about Spectre in that he, um, we don't know about his background, as he has a kind of, uh, a, a sort of sinister, something a little bit strange and off about him, but he's, uh, but he's a perfectly um, uh, insightful detective. So what would people think of you if they met you on the street? I mean, what? how do you see yourself? Are you, are you a little odd? Or are you, a, 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 you seem like a really interesting man. You just think, I mean, very interesting. But how, would, how do you see yourself? I mean, I, uh, I mean, I always... It, the whole thing in terms of writing is very new to me in that this is my first book. This is the first time that I'm, um, uh, you know, I'm getting people emailing me and, and appearing out of the blue. And I'm, I always, uh, I, I'm, I always try to be very uh, receptive and, you know, warm and appreciative because obviously it's it's such a such a big deal for me, you know, that, that people are. are Lovely, positive 
comments, etc. But uh, um, my background, uh, I previously worked at a university and then a college, um, but, but I've always been, I've always had writing uh, on the back burner, so to speak. I've always been doing it in my spare time, but it's, it's only in the last year that I've, managed, that I've managed to make the leap to doing it full time. Now, you're not going to be doing any events at the, at the store at Otto's? Otto's bookstore in New York. Uh, I would love to. It's just a question of whether whether it works out because obviously I'm in the UK. Um, there's a lot of considerations, but uh, uh, you never say never. That's true. I can I can see this event with this, a magician and all kinds of things. Think of the fun you could have at such an event. You know. I know. I mean, I've never been to I've never been to New York, but uh, I would. So love to go to the mysterious bookshop. It's just, uh, it just looks such a wonderful venue. And he's, I mean, he's he's always online, Otto, and he's always got wonderful, interesting things to say. He even tells you about his whole week. So you can actually go online and read about his weeks and what he what he's doing and you know who he met this week and, and what books are coming. It's fascinating. I mean, he's just a very fascinating man. Absolutely, I met him uh, um, back in. March, April time, when he came over to London for the for the London Book Fair. So that was that was a great evening. I got to chat to him and hear a lot of his stories. And, you know, when you meet nice people, it brings the world into focus. It, it's kind of like, you know, you think to yourself, wow, maybe everybody in the world is like this. <laughs> you know, and, and the hope, it gives you more hope. The more, I think the more, the, the more nice people you meet, the more hope you have that humanity is not all lost, even though we're in this mess of a, a world right now, that there are actually nice people out there, good, pe good people. Um, and and the, the good thing that I found is that in the, the sort of reading and writing community, the the mystery fiction community, uh, I've met a lot of, uh, of really great people. And uh, as I said, people have been very positive about the book. People are very enthusiastic about it. And uh, it, it's just really encouraging because when you've been writing as a as a hobby when you've been doing it just on your own um without any particular end goal in mind uh it's great to finally launch it out into the world and have people be so nice about it so you've had all this talent uh, all these years and now you're just finally it's all finally coming out Wh what year did you first start writing um, well, I did, I, I did, I, I've always, I mean, I've always loved writing, even when I was very young and storytelling, etc. Um, and I've always been a big reader, so, um, particularly of mysteries, so coming up with plots and plot twists, etc. And also the, um, uh, just the conventions of the mystery genre, it's something that's always been kind of, uh, in the back of my mind, it's always been kind of ingrained from quite a young age. Um, I did study creative writing uh, at university, um, which which was um, a great experience, and very beneficial to me. Uh, but then, once I'd completed my degree, I was straight into. Um, uh, well, I worked a few different jobs, admin jobs, etc. But I, I never stopped writing. But it was. Uh, what is uh, it about writing that's so that's so thrilling to you? I mean, what is it about it? Um, I think for me, it's trying to uh, give uh, people, give readers the, the the thrill that I get when I'm reading a really good mystery. Um, I mean, I talk a lot about John Dixon Carr. But he he is very much my um, a real inspirational figure for me. Just uh, because, like Ed Hoke, he had such a uh, sensational imagination and a, a real knack for atmosphere. And um, when I read, when I was first discovering his novels, it was a real a revelation, really, uh, that this uh, that this guy could. Uh, pull the rug out from under you so spectacularly and um, uh, really it was it, it, it was about trying to capture some of that uh, that feeling that, uh, that that I get from reading
reading books like his, but also Agatha Christie, Ellery Queen, the other great plotters and writers, you know. Do you think you'll be as good as them someday? <laughs> well, <laughs> there's uh, a question I mean, for you. <laughs> uh, uh, I think of it as um, I'm paying tribute to uh, their um, their work and the impact that they've had on me by writing mysteries that are set in the in the golden age at the height of their popularity. So um, I I, uh, I think it's. Um, uh, I'm just grateful for the opportunity to sort of uh, uh, pay them that tribute of uh, of trying to um, uh, you know keep their keep their names alive and keep people talking about their work by producing my own news. Well, it's such a different in that vein. Yeah, the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, it was such a different time. And the writing is so different from the way it is now. I mean, right now, anything's... I mean, you have all kinds of stuff being written now that, that would never have been published back then. Not, not to the extent, you know, the, the violence and, and you know, the things that, that are in books now that yeah. you would never have seen to any great extent back then. It's true, um, but I think... Um, that the golden age mysteries uh, have a, a kind of psychological insight, which is uh, which is very relevant today, even now. Um, they, I mean, Agatha Christie, for instance, she uh, she had a lot of interesting things to say about, um, for example, yeah. class. Um, and nobody, yeah, nobody, right. And none of her yeah, characters were ever. They ne they always had secrets, you know. You never could figure out characters in her books right away. They never they seemed to be never what they seemed at first. There was more to them. Exactly. Always. Yeah, that's it. Exactly. It's um, yeah. You, you've you've hit the nail on the head there. That uh, um, it, it teaches you as a reader to um, to always look be beneath the surface. And it has to, but it also has to feel real. You can't just take something out of, you know, a context and say, well, this person was this all along and not have it make sense. It's got to make sense. If it doesn't make any sense, the reader gets frustrated and the, the reader feels cheated, you know, that the clues weren't there. You have to have those clues hmm. there. That's important. Yeah, that's, um, yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm very much a believer in the, the fair play mystery where you're giving the reader an equal chance to, um, uh, you're giving them all the clues that they need in theory to solve the mystery for themselves. But then, um, uh, but then this is where the, the, the stage illusion element comes in. You're putting the clues there in plain sight, but uh, they are sort of artfully concealed so that um, the reader's uh, focus is on the wrong thing. So you, I mean, you write, and writing's a very solitary profession to, to, a, to a great extent. And of course you get to meet people, you know, the people behind the scenes a lot of times. But how does one who writes go, go to a book event and have to speak in front of people? That must be terrifying at first. Well, I mean, uh, it's it's pretty it's a pretty new thing to me. I've not done too much at the moment. I'm I'm thinking because uh, obviously the book's not out yet, um, and right. it's not coming out in the UK for a few months after. But uh, I, I'm look I'm looking forward to uh, uh, to getting into that uh, that side of things. But I have. Um, uh, I mean, in previous roles, I've delivered creative writing workshops and things like that. So I'll probably approach it in a in a similar way. Really, it's it's just about. Um, I think really, when you're enthusiastic about a subject, um, it, it's it's kind of infectious. And uh, when I've been to book events for other writers, and you can just tell that they that they love their their work and they they love sharing it with people. I think that. As long as you're okay speaking in front of other people, you get up in front. I mean, I, I had to do it. I had to create uh, trivia questions for Lisa Scottolini and Harlan Coben one time. I was terrified, absolutely terrified. I'm like, 
what if I mess up? What if I say the wrong thing? You know, what if people laugh at me? And you, you, these things go through your mind beforehand, and you think, I could really make an ass of myself tonight. You know? And that fear is always yeah. there. But once the yeah, thing is, course, once, you, yeah. once you get up and you realize, you know what? Who cares what people think? I'm just going to do the best mm. I can do, and that's all I can do. If you, but and it turned out incredibly wonderful. To this day, it's still a memory that that's there in my mind, and it will be forever. It was fantastic, and I even had Harlan yelling at me at one point. And you know what? It, <laughs> and fun. But you know what? I didn't take it in that way. I, I was I was having too much fun to even care. <laughs> but yeah. But that's it. That's great. You just get swept up in the enthusiasm, don't you? Yeah, you suddenly realize, you know, these are just people too, you know. And, you, and as much as I'm nervous, you know, who cares? Just, just go on and have fun. Everybody was laughing and having a great time, and that's really all that matters. If if you can't have a good time, yeah, why course. bother doing it to begin with? Absolutely. Yes, uh, I agree completely. But as I say, I'm still pretty new to the whole. Um, <laughs> Uh, the, the more um, public side of things. I've done a few interviews, much like this one, um, but uh, it's um, it's all it's all a learning experience for me as well. And in this, that went back to when I was doing that. That was before they became huge the way they are now. I mean, now people would be like, "Really, you did that?" But they're taking it in the context of how they how big the two authors are now. But <laughs> I knew them before they became huge, so it it even it even more you know. It, it, but anyway, uh, Death and the Conjure. Let's talk a little bit about the plot. Why don't you? Let's see how good you are at, at summing up your plot in a couple minutes. I do my best. Um, <laughs> well, it's 1930s London. Um, it's um, there's uh, the, one of the key characters is a psychiatrist called uh, Doctor Anselm Rees, and he uh, has just arrived in London. He's uh, um, He's a, a celebrity psychiatrist um, in the vein of uh, Sigmund Freud type figure, and uh, he uh, he takes on three new patients. Um, but the the interesting thing is that these patients are um, uh, their identities are kept secret. They're known by the uh, uh, by uh, the initials A, B, and C. So you've got patient A, patient B. And patient C. But, so um, there are three, three very kind of diverse characters, and uh, like we talked about with Christie, they've, they've got secrets. Um, and then uh, when the uh, when Doctor Reese is uh, is found murdered in his study. Um, it, it becomes a real puzzle trying to untangle who's who, how the doctor was murdered, and um, uh, and why. So uh, obviously this is a real challenge for the police investigators, and so they're forced to bring in somebody who who who's got a kind of lateral uh, approach to uh, to investigation. So that's where Spectre, the retired musical conjurer detective is, is brought in to, to investigate. And I assume that, that the name Spectre is not a, a coincidental. You, <laughs> I mean, it's a name that, that conjures up the you know, yeah. Spectre. You, I, I assume you did that on purpose. Yes, absolutely. I, um, I like to put in little... Um, a little sort of in-jokes and hidden references and things. I mean, uh, Death and the Conjurer has got a load of... Uh, uh, references to Golden Age writers that, that I that I particularly admire. Some are uh, obvious, but some are a bit more um, a bit more below the surface. So uh, I think that adds an element of fun for the reader as well, if you can spot the little uh, the little references. Exactly. Oh, for sure. I mean, when you when you do spot something, it's kind of like, oh man, that's you know, and you get excited. It's something that's. That that's adds it, to yeah, the, you're in on the joke as well, yeah. And it's, you know, as 
writers are fascinating creatures to begin with. I mean, going going all the way back to the Hemingway. I mean, Hemingway. <laughs> <laughs> he had a very interesting life, you know, and, and and a lot of writers had interesting. I mean, they they have we have this idea that they sit and drink all day, and, and they're all, but it isn't. They're all not all like that. But I mean, Lee Child has said, no, I think I, mean, I think Lee Child has said at one point he was drinking thirty six cups of coffee a day, some ridiculous amount of coffee a day, and you, and you think well, how is he still even alive? Yeah, absolutely. It shows on the page, though. I mean, he's uh, he writes with so much energy. You know, it, it, it's um, it's uh, it, it's interesting to um, well, learn about writers' lifestyles. I've always been fascinated by how you tap into that, though. How do you know that you're a writer? Um, I th I think there's some people that you know you read their books, you're like, ah, oh, that was okay, but I really need something better. And without naming any names, I'm not going to name anybody, but, you know, but it's all, it's all in what we, everybody's different, you know, and the fact that millions of people could love one author is amazing when you think about it, because everybody has a different opinion about things. Yeah, it's, it's yeah, it's, it's remarkable. I, uh, I often come back to Stephen King's uh, On Writing, his, uh, his book, which is, uh, it's, Definitely one of the best books I've read about uh, about the practice of, of writing. He um, uh, he's just such a because obviously he sold millions and millions of, of copies. But he um, there's a kind of no nonsense um, aspect to him. He he's somebody who I don't know. He just taps into the um, the story. He he And that's the, and that's the beauty of it. it when you read his yeah, books, you realize, like oh my God, people. that's part of my childhood. What he's talking about, I actually did. I actually thought those things. I actually did those things. Yeah. How does he know? It's like he's like he's getting into our minds and and reading our thoughts, and it's like <laughs> it's kind of creepy when you think about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, that's uh, uh, that's a great way of of thinking about it. But uh, just even the little throwaway things like the popular music, the uh, the little cultural references that he throws in, they 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 make a big difference. I think uh, they make uh, they they really turn a work from something that's quite anonymous and hard to uh, hard to empathise with, and they they make it uh, they make it accessible. Exactly. And he's like an old, I mean, he's in his 70s now, but he's like a little kid. The man, like, it's like he's never really grown up. He's, he's just, that's, Yeah. I mean, if he wears I his... About, I mean, you see him wearing a baseball um, cap and going to the games, <laughs> baseball games, you're like, oh my God, this guy's a real person. You know? <laughs> yeah, he, but that's what I mean about the enthusiasm as well. When you hear him speak, you know that he's not lost his love of telling stories, and that interesting when you read these um, celebrity tell-all books and you see that there's another name on the cover of the book you think to yourself well the celebrity wrote it but he had help or she he or she had help and I always think to myself why can't I just read the book by that person <laughs> I want to see how, yeah. I want to see what their what their take on things would be and I know the editing process has to be done and, and probably the person helping on the book is doing some of the editing but it's 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 too fascinating. I mean, to listen to the the actor, you you know, it's it's almost like well, they didn't really write the whole thing themselves. So it's kind of an interesting yeah. thing. I mean, you'll never see a co-author yeah. on. I don't know on some no, author. No, that's true. You won't see a co-author being interviewed, for example. Yeah, and it. It's a it's yeah. an interesting dynamic that there's two writers, and it, but the the weird thing is. When you read a book like that, you can't tell the difference. Who's writing one part and who's writing another? You really can't. I think, well, I think the thing with, um, for example, some or musician biographies,
biographies. I think what happens is the the actor will tell the story, and then the um, the writer will will write it up basically. I think um, I think that's what happens in some of the cases. So it, it has. So when you read it, it has that kind of feeling that the that the, the person is talking directly to you because they were, you know, they they were talking into a recorder. It's when you when you read a book uh, and the book just flows really nicely from the beginning to end. You think to yourself, "How this must have been very difficult to write because that's not easy to do." Because I, if you, I mean. What, Speaking of me, and I'm not a writer, when I sit and write a sentence, I look at it and I'm like, oh, that just sounds so clunky and it just doesn't sound right. And when you think that these writers can do this over and over and over again, it's an amazing thing. Well, the editing, from my admittedly limited experience, the editing is the hard part, really. Um, it, it can be hard to lose a sentence or even a, or a phrase or even a word that, that you're particularly attached to. But um, I think the, the important thing is to get a bit of space between you and the work. So uh, when I write a draft of something, I will often leave it for a while. And then when you come back to it, you do, you do have a different fresh perspective on it because you're reading it the way that, that, that other people are going to read it. You're reading it beginning to end. And things, um, you know, certain phrases and things may stick out that when you were writing them you didn't think twice about. But uh, uh, So I think uh, just taking a bit of um, a bit of a step back can, can be really beneficial to editing. Now you have, an, you have an editor with Mysterious Press now, right? Somebody could be right. I mean, you, you're not perfect. Nobody's perfect. If we were, if they were no, all perfect writers, imagine the books we'd be reading. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, of course. But um, but the thing was, I think every every writer has their strengths uh, and things that they're not so good at. So um, uh, I I think there's always going to be elements of a book that are stronger than other elements. I mean, have you always been? You sound like you're a really confident writer, like you know you can do it. But you must have had moments where you're like, oh, man, why did I, why did I even try this? I must have been crazy to think I could do this. Yeah, uh, yeah, 100%. Um, I suppose the thing is um, I have done other writing in the past on a freelance basis, so I have 
have done ghostwriting, I've done copywriting. So it, it, you, you kind of, um, there's a sort of voice that, that you can adopt and kind of slip into, um, that there are certain, you know, constructing sentences, looking at it on a, on a, on a sort of word by word basis. Um, but, but, uh, once you know how to do it, it it's, um, like Stephen King says, it's not just an art, it's also a craft in that it comes with practice. So uh, the only way to, to learn how to do it, from my experience, is just by doing it. And, uh, and obviously you're going to get rejections, you're going to get uh, you're going to get criticism for, for your work along the way. But it does help to. to and we're back with Tom Mead. I, I, we had a little disconnection there. You were talking about um, Stephen King, and you were talking about uh, the confidence in writing. I, I had asked you about um, how how you how confident you are as a writer, and then and whether you've ever had da- whether you've ever had days where you weren't confident. Yeah, all the time. Um, but I think that just goes with the territory, uh, and. Um, Really, you've got to be, um, again, this is from my very limited perspective, uh, my own personal experience, but um, from what I've learned, you've just got to be stubborn and you've just got to stick with it because uh, it's, uh, it's the, the most important thing is to, is to write uh, something beginning to end and worry about the rest later. Because we're... we're, we're... It seems like the human being in general is most critical of themselves. I mean, we, we're with ourselves all day. So we're, if something doesn't feel right, you know, it tends to be, we tend to think, you know, it's us. There's something wrong with me. Maybe I can't do this, you know. And, and getting past that is, is the key. Getting to the point where you're like, I'm just going to keep doing this. I'm determined that this is going to be good. And how do I get to yeah. that point where I, I know I can do this? I mean... I mean, when you start yeah. doing something and you realize you're not real good at it, it's kind of an awkward feeling. So you, you call somebody over and you say, you know, I don't know how to do this. Help me out. And they help you out. But you're in this by yourself. And you can't call anybody and say, well, how do you write? Tell me how you write. And they can't yeah. explain it to you over the phone. You either have to do it or you can't do it. You know, it's one or the other. You don't, if you have the fortitude... Well, I- you can, you can, I think um, there's the writing and then there's the editing. The writing is important because it, you tell the story beginning to end and you get it all down on the page. And then the editing is when you worry about the, uh, uh, the, the language and the, the prose uh, and, all, and all those kinds of things. Um, there's a, uh, there was a good quote, I can't remember who it was who said it, but... Um, it says that if a reader reads something of yours and tells you that there's something wrong with it, then they're always right. But if they tell you that they know how to fix it, then they're always wrong. Um, <laughs> That's great. So, yeah, so um, if, uh, if, if a reader, if you, if you finish a story and you send it to someone, they say, hmm, maybe you could try doing this, then ignore them, but look at it again and come up with the answer yourself absolutely what a wonderful it, and, and that brings to, to mind when I read a book that I don't really like when I'm done the book I think to myself you know I'm not I'm not quite sure whether I like that book or not and it goes through, and but then you think to yourself, how would I fix it? And I have no idea how I would fix it. <laughs> Absolutely no idea, because I'm not a writer. I'm not good at at writing it. And it's fascinating that you know. It's like you know something's wrong, but you just can't put your finger on it. Yeah, and and that's the thing. That's where um, the the sort of uh, the practice comes in. It's something that um, the more you do it the earlier you will spot these things and you'll, you'll come up with different ways of, of tackling uh, if there's something that's not working. Uh, sometimes it's a case of scrapping the whole thing, but a lot of times it's a case of, um, you know, just tweaking it here and there, and it can make a big difference. Exactly, exactly. Now, you have two more stories. I think you told me of After Death and the Conjured. You have two other books in development already? 
yeah. Um, well, there's a sequel to Death and the Conjurer, which is called The Murder Wheel. Um, it's another Spectre story, 1930s London. Um, it's, uh, it's more impossible crimes, more mystery. Uh, it's, it's a lot of fun. Um, uh, so that is coming from Mysterious Crimes. Now, we, will we find out more about Spectre in that one? Well, Spectre, I mean, Spectre's there. Uh, he, he haunts it like a Spectre, obviously. But um, he, we, we, we learn bits and pieces, but then do we, can we believe what we hear? You know, it's, uh, <laughs> I like that, having that. Um, you just, you just love, you, you love torturing the reader by not telling him everything, <laughs> don't you? I think you really yeah, enjoy that. Exactly, exactly. Spectre knows everything, but nobody knows about him, so, you know. <laughs> so he's like the writer in that, in that respect. But I mean, how many, um, but, I mean, just sitting here talking to me right now, do you have uh, numerous ideas for stories with him? Yes, uh, I've actually, um, well, I've got two other full-length novels plotted um, and in draft form, uh, which I wrote during uh, during lockdown. Obviously, I didn't have much else right. to do, so uh, so I you can only drink so much ideas. coffee, you know. <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, so there are two more specters uh, in the pipeline, which hopefully will see the light of day. But I've also co-written a uh, a lot through mystery for for younger readers with my friend uh, Michael Dahl, who's a who's a um, a great and very prolific uh, author of children's books. This is aimed more at a. Uh, kind of young adult readership but I, I think grown-ups will enjoy it as well to be honest um it's uh, uh that's a uh, another locked room mystery which uh, is uh, is in the pipeline again i can't say too much about it but but uh, we're hoping that it'll be out sooner or later so we don't even know who it's going to be who is going to publish it or where we're going to see it uh, no, but um, I'll yeah. keep you posted. <laughs> but yet another mystery. I mean, how many mysteries do you have for us, Tom? It, isn't three <laughs> enough? <laughs> I mean, you, you, you can only torture the reader for so long. You remember when they um, when they had that show, The Killing, that was on? Yes, I do. The Swedish uh, drama. And they, the, the first season was this killing, and everybody couldn't wait till the end to see the murder. Well, they decided they weren't going to reveal the murder to the beginning of the second season, and boy, did that <laughs> cause did that cause a, for a fewer people are still upset about that. You know, it's like <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. You can't, and you. But so the the bottom line is, you can't be mean to the reader too much, or you lose the reader. You know. Well, or um, the TV watcher in this case. Absolutely. Well, the thing with the Spectre stories and with the, the Fair Play mysteries in general is, you always get an answer. You always get a solution um, that is, in theory, satisfactory to the reader. You know, everything is resolved, uh, even if um, justice is not served. Maybe the killer gets away with it. Um, there's always an answer. You, you always know who done it. And you know what? Uh, how right, right, exactly. You don't want to cheat the reader at the end either. I hate these books where you read the whole story and then briefly at the end they explain it and then it's nothing. It isn't really all explained. I can't stand books like that. Don't ever write a book like that. That's what I feel. <laughs> I want a full explanation. Yeah. I want to know everything. I don't want to be. Yeah. I don't want any of these. These, you know, on on. Unresolved issues. That that's really frustrating for a, a reader. Yeah, um, particularly in this kind of mystery where the focus is on the plot and on answering these uh, these questions. Uh, it, it's really important, I think, to um, to give an ending that is satisfactory. Uh, I'm not saying that the the endings have all got to be the same. They've not all got to follow that that precise formula, but they've got to give the reader that, that feeling that, ah, yes, it all makes sense now. In a way, there's a formula to books, of course. We all know there's a, there's a certain formula, but...
At the same time, it doesn't want to. You don't want to sense like if I when I read your second book, I don't want to feel it's like the same thing as the first book. I want to feel that it's different. I want to feel that there's different things happening and there's and things are changing. That's what. That's how I will. I feel that way after the second book. Do you think? Uh, yes. Um, <laughs> the, I mean, it's got it's uh, it's. Um, it follows a formula in that it's impossible crimes, it's magic-themed, it's got a theatrical uh, element to it, and it's got recurring characters, but the uh, the puzzle itself, the plot, the, uh, the characters, um, and the structure is, uh, it's all very different. I say the structure because um, the second book is set over the course of a, of a single night, Whereas Death and the Conjurer takes place over a, over a number of days, so it, it, the 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 structure is different. The whole kind of flow and feel of it is different as well. But uh, but it's a murder mystery. That sounds exciting. It's not like and Spectre. We actually like Spectre. You know how with Sherlock Holmes, you don't always like Sherlock Holmes. Sometimes he's a real yeah. jerk. You know? <laughs> Let's be honest. <laughs> But that's yeah, his nature. Yeah. His nature is he doesn't. He's not good with. He's not socially good with people a lot of times. Yeah. So he tends to be very abrasive with people. But that's that's, that's the fun of the character too. I mean, we exactly. And it's the mark of a good character that they're so well defined. And what a fun! What a fun! It must have been a lot of fun for Doyle. I know he got tired of writing uh, Sherlock Holmes after a while because he was, he was sort of pigeonholed into writing because Sherlock Holmes was such a humongous figure in literature. I mean, but yeah. but it had to be fun writing um, these long things with, with him yelling at other characters and getting angry <laughs> at other characters. It had to be fun to write. Yeah, of course. But I think Conan Doyle ended up in a situation where he was he was jealous of, of his character's popularity um, where people would recognize Sherlock Holmes that would not recognize Arthur Conan Doyle, you know. So I think that's, uh, that's, where, um, that's where they fell out, so to speak. Does Spectre have a huge ego, do you think? Yeah, I think so, because, I mean, he's a performer, um, and I think it goes with the territory. Uh, but he he's he's trying to hide it, you know. Uh, he's he's wearing a mask just like every other character. And that's a, and that's another thing that made Sherlock Holmes so wonderful. The Lestrade character, how Lestrade would would just bait him, and and you know they 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 would have these issues back and forth. I mean that was fun yeah. to read too. I mean you have to have yeah. you have to have conflict in a novel, or or I, I mean, to a certain extent, don't you? Yeah, of course. Um, this is why I think in the, the Golden Age mysteries you have the amateur detective as quite a prominent figure. You've got Hercule Poirot, characters like that. Uh, Ellery Queen, of course, the, the character, not the, not the author, um, as somebody who, in, who is there to assist the police but who is also coming into conflict with them. Right, exactly. Boy, we've talked a lot. This has been a, a, a tremendously fun hour. I just, this book is really, I really enjoyed reading Death and the Conjurer. I'm really... Oh, thank you. I'm really... I'm so glad. And John Connolly has a huge uh, thing on the front here. Wow. Mm, yeah, I know. That was, that was, uh, yeah, that was a real treat. John's a wonderful that. man. I haven't seen him in years, but I, he's just a, a really great guy. He loves to, and he's fun to, to go to a bar with and just talk. Because <laughs> he's such an interesting man. And yet he's got this dark, he's got this dark side that comes out in his novels that is like, what is that, spiders and things? I'm like, what is going on with this man? <laughs> <laughs> I love it. That's writers for you. You never know what's uh, you never know what's going on under the surface. <laughs> you can only imagine what the what some of the uh, readers must say to him. Like, where, what is in your mind that you have this this the, you know? Because he he's very 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 dark. Yeah, definitely. I think uh, I think it's quite a cathartic um, thing, really, in that um, you write about murders and violence, but. Uh, often the, the, the mystery writers and crime writers
writers that I've met or come into contact with are just so lovely and approachable, you know. So there's obviously the, the act of writing about crimes is, is quite therapeutic, I think. He can't, I somehow was able to, along with a, a bookstore lady who was doing the events, we actually got him to come to a place called Barnes & Noble in Bryn Mawr, Pennsylvania, and he was absolutely incredibly interesting the whole night because he had written for a newspaper, so he had all kinds of stories to tell. He's got mm, he's got bet. tons of stories in his mind that are they're just fascinating to listen to, and it was just the most incredible yeah. night. And yeah, fantastic writer. So. I just want to mention once again, Death and the Conjurer will be out July 12th from Mysterious Press. I love their logo with that sign on it. It's such a wonderful oh, logo. <laughs> logo, and, and it'll be out in all your bookstores, and you get it in an e-book form in, in, the, in the United Kingdom. Any other countries have an interest in it? Um, there is a Japanese-language edition on the way, but I don't know too much about that at the moment. But uh, I know that the rights have been sold for a Japanese translation. Um, and also a Slovak language translation. So we, we're, bit by bit, we're, uh, we're, we're building it up. And you're yeah, such, you're such an, an interesting and nice person to talk to. It's been, a, it's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, thank you, David. It's been great. It's been great to talk to you. And this has been David's Book Talk, and we'll talk to you next time. You have just enjoyed the podcast of David's Book Talk, brought to you by your host, book lover, David English. Please visit us at davidsbooktalk.com, follow us on Facebook and Twitter, and subscribe to our podcast. We want to hear from you, and we don't want you to miss our upcoming shows with top authors like Mary Higgins Clark, Patricia Cornwell, Lisa Scottolini, Jackie Collins, Nelson DeMille, Michael Connolly, Sue Grafton, Steve Martini, Dale Brown, David Baldacci.